the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thank you so much for joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. It's a Tuesday, the 19th morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2019. we got a lot of things that we still want to do in the second hour, including getting the analysis of Peter Kersenau, not just on the Justice Smollett case, but on what it says, bigger picture, as I've been discussing with you, laboring to get the point across over the course of the last hour. But also, the last time we spoke was on Friday, and the President was telling us why he was going to sign one of the worst bills that I have seen come down the line in a long, long time. And in fact, the amnesty for illegal immigrants in this country and uh, making the job a lot harder on ICE and uh, uh, Customs and Border uh, Enforcement at our southern border. Peter Kersenow now joins us to discuss all of the above. Cleveland attorney, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, host of the Kersenow Report you hear uh, every day on AM 1420, The Answer at some point or another, and the author of Target Omega and Second Strike. Peter, good morning, my friend. How are you? Bob, I'm doing really well. 37 days to opening day. I'm psyched. A little bit more than a month. We need more offensive pop, though. You aren't kidding about that, my friend. <laughs> we really do. Uh, okay, Pete, um, I've been spending a lot of time today on um, the larger impact of the Jussie Smollett hoax and the fact that he is not unique in creating a hoax. There, The Daily Caller did some incredible work digging up just since November of 2016, since Trump became president, the number of phony hate crime hoaxes that have been alleged and debunked or proven or admitted by the hoaxer uh, to have been uh, fabricated just to make Trump and Trump supporters and conservatives in general look like they're evil, racist, bigots, homophobes, Islamophobes, etc., etc. Um, there is a movement afoot, I believe, just to scare Trump supporters into the shadows, keep them quiet so they don't come out and defend themselves for fear of being branded as one of those, uh, one of those you know racists and bigots who are committing these terrible crimes. Uh, Jesse Smollett's been busted. Uh, the only thing that remains now is the grand jury to come back with an indictment, and then they'll probably go ahead and get a guilty plea and a uh, and a, and a probation uh, probationary period for him. But how dangerous is this that the media was willing and able to advance this hoax as quickly and as and as 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 um, vociferously, I suppose, as they were, as well as Democrat politicians who could not get uh, in front of a microphone fast enough to say we're praying for Jesse and we condemn uh, these Trump supporters' evil acts. It's extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, we have a country that has just about every ethnic group imaginable and at every race. Um, we are extraordinarily diverse, and when you start pitting group against group, which is what the left does, because as we see with the Green New Deal, their ideas are absolutely nutty, literally insane. So they can't talk to us about their ideas. They can't say we're in favor of socialism because everybody, not everybody, but the majority of people would reject it. So the tact that they use is to pit group against group and say, we're on the side, and they hope they get a critical mass of people (laughs) that identify with them. And when you do this kind of thing, when you get people this upset on matters related to race and identity, it can spark some serious consequences. What's really interesting to me is that the press has 
serial face plants. Uh, you know, they do it almost on a, at, at bare minimum, a monthly basis, but it's really gotten even more, more rapid than that. We had the Covington issue, they face planted on that, and then without pausing, they seamlessly transition to what I think almost all of us believed, but we held our breath on it and held our fire. We all believed that the way the Smollett um, uh, so-called incident was described was just completely absurd. No one believed it. And it also suffers from the fact that, as you just indicated, there's a litany of, you know, you may hear about the high-profile hoaxes, but on the Civil Rights Commission, I've had um, the the job, frankly, of going through the the number of hoaxes is astronomical. And, uh, for example, yesterday I uh, posted on National Review a, um, a kind of a summary of the Civil Rights Commission's hate crimes hearing from last year. And when you look at the data, the data completely contradicts the media narrative. And I hear the media narrative even this morning. They keep saying the same things over and over again because, like a number of totalitarians have indicated over the years, both from, from Nazi Germany and uh, Stalin's um, Soviet Union, if you tell a lie big enough and often enough, pretty soon it becomes the truth. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing there. No, they you're right, repeating, though. They're repeating the same lies over and over again, and the facts are right in front of them if they choose to, to broadcast them, but they don't. For your audience members, let me just say that we had a hearing, again, at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Um, the full hearing report won't be coming out for a while. Uh, but the transcript's there, and I will be issuing a dissent to the liberal majority's report on this. And the dissent, I can tell you right now, is going to eviscerate them. It's going to be furious, because it is this serious. You can't perpetuate lies like this, because, number one, it I think it harms the very people who purport to benefit from these lies. It makes people think that they are perpetual victims, and they act as if they are losers, and there's no opportunity available for them. That's just the biggest lie imaginable, and it needs to be stopped in its tracks. But to give you some perspective with respect to hate crimes, they always say that hate crimes are increasing in the era of Trump. Bob, I'm here to tell you right now, having looked at the FBI Unified Crime Reporting Statistics, the FBI actually goes out there. They assess these things. They bring in all of these, of, of these stats, and they actually break it down by the type of alleged hate crime, the race, ethnicity, sex of the perpetrator and victim, so on and so forth. You you can see it in black and white. It's right there if reporters choose to see it and look at it as as opposed to continuing to repeat these lies. And I'll say it one more time because it's important, Bob. If your listeners are watching the news, watching any commentary on this or reading about it, and you see anyone say that hate crimes are increasing, Tune that person out immediately. That person either, number one, does not know what they are talking about, or number two, is purposely lying to advance an agenda. Unequivocally so. Let me give you a couple stats with respect to the, the nature of hate crimes. And I've always asked, why should you even call something a hate crime? If something is an assault, is it an assault? Um, is, isn't it punished the same way? Why should it be punished anymore? But, uh, you know, that would take a, a little bit more time than we have here today, Bob. But let me give you a couple stats. 
just to give you perspective with respect to hate crimes, I watched um, some CNN yesterday. I do it so you guys don't have to. I watched some CNN yesterday and watched a, a parade of witnesses talk about the increase in hate crimes and how hate crimes are just prevalent throughout the land. There are all these MAGA-wearing, uh, hat-wearing uh, white males who are attacking people who are, uh, you know, of intersectionality, you know, people who are black and homo- uh, homosexual or any, all these other things, okay? Here, here's some stats. In 2015, which is the last year for which there were complete stats on this from the FBI, there were 1,997,700 violent crimes in the U.S. 1,997,700, nearly 2 million. Now, if there's a lot of hate crimes out there, you would expect that they would be, man, what, at least 100,000, 200,000? There were 5,850 total hate crimes in, in the United States. Now, any one hate crime is a bad thing, but any crime sure. is a bad thing. Okay? There were 15,696 cases of murder or manslaughter in the U.S., eight of which were hate crimes, or, again, 0.0005% of crimes that were murder and manslaughter, were designated as hate. And I could go down the list with respect to aggravated assault, 0.00089%. With respect to rape, 0.00096. Robberies, 0.00036. They're infinitesimally small. Not to excuse them, but they're crimes anyway. Designated as hate crimes does absolutely nothing. And I asked this question, by the way, Bob, at the commission hearing of the top law enforcement, criminologists, and hate crimes experts in the country, okay? Two questions I asked, and I think they're important for you to hear, and I'm, I'm going to read them to you. Okay. Number one, are you aware of any data, studies, or other evidence that shows that designating a crime a hate crime deters, prevents, or reduces that crime, and second, whether designating a federal hate crime reduces, deters, or prevents incidents of that crime. Complete silence. Nobody had any information to show that that's what happened. Then I asked one other one. Are you aware of any database study or other evidence that shows designating a crime a hate crime, whether municipal, federal, or state crime, assists in the resolution of that crime or apprehension of the perpetrator? Crickets. So, if designating a crime a hate crime doesn't deter, prevent, or resolve such crime, what's the purpose of the designation? Other than to be used as a political cudgel, as it has been in the last couple of weeks that we've seen in the Jesse Smollett case. And it still is today. It still is today. The the, the response to those, or by those rather, who instantly believe they forgot the word alleged existed. They just said Jesse Smollett was attacked by Trump supporters in a racist, uh, homophobic attack. Uh, Hate crime. Hate crime. They, They made sure to say that. Those who said all of that then, now that they know this is coming apart at the seams and it's a giant hoax, instead of saying we need to hold him accountable for that, they are saying, well, just because Jesse Smollett cried wolf doesn't mean the wolf doesn't exist. The hate crimes are still on the rise. They're on the rise in the last year because of Donald Trump. They're looking at statistics that say there are more hate crimes being committed. Forget about all of the stuff that you just said. 
They're just saying more hate crimes means there's more hate in America, more people are acting out against people that they hate in America because of what Donald Trump stands for. And, of course, we know, statistically speaking, it's it's infinitesimal, the number you, numbers you just gave, uh, as far as uh, those that have been des- designated hate crimes. But moreover, Pete, the thing that they're not talking about, and some are you know pointing out to, to debunk this, is that there are more... Um, municipalities and localities right. that are that are tracking these now so that they have more being reported simply because they weren't reporting them before it makes it look like the number of hate crimes is on the rise when in reality it's just more are being counted uh for for whatever reason these localities are doing that yeah and you're exactly right about that we had that evidence at the civil rights commission uh what we got now are more more precise reporting but it doesn't really move the needle hardly at all with respect to hate crimes. The level is still where it's been for at least the last 15 to 17 years. All right, 1025. Peter Kirsten now continues with us for just a few more minutes before the bottom of the hour on AM 1420, The Answer. Pete, let me shift gears. Uh, On Friday, we listened to the President of the United States from the Rose Garden talk about uh, signing uh, the uh, bill that he did, the uh, funding bill through September. That, quite frankly, is a disastrous bill, in my opinion, one that I feel like he should have vetoed. And then, of course, he announced the, the emergency, national emergency. He's facing 16 different states' lawsuits now uh, challenging that national emergency. I'm just going to give you free reign here for five minutes to react to either one of those, either the bill that he signed or the uh, likelihood of uh, the national emergency holding up in court. Yeah, I think I'll react to both of them. First of all, my view of the bill is it's horrible. It's a really bad bill. There's no defending it whatsoever. It may not be as bad as you think, Bob. I mean, I, I, I think it's horrible. <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't think the world's going to come to an end, but it's a horrible bill. It's not something that, uh, I would prefer. And I think he placed himself in a box. He almost had to sign it because of the fear of the government shutdown and the Democrats, I'm sorry, the Republicans probably fleeing if something wasn't done about this. They put themselves in a political box. And without going back in time, I blame just about everybody, but um, I blame the fact that Republicans, when they hold both the House and the Senate, and when Trump had momentum in the first 100 days or even 200 days of his presidency, this should have been done. It was the priority. It's what he ran on. It should have been done at that time. They would have had a greater critical mass in favor of it, and I think it may have been able to get done. A very good bill could have been done with more wall than what we're currently getting, if, if we're getting anything whatsoever. Okay, that's done for right now. Okay, we got this bad bill. So what happens with respect to the challenge to the emergency declaration? I think that clearly, without any question, you and I have talked about this before. We've even talked about it offline. Um, we knew this was going to happen. We knew there was going to be a challenge, and it was going to be in the Ninth Circuit. And it's almost guaranteed that the Ninth Circuit is going to rule it unconstitutional. I don't know how. I don't know on what basis. doesn't matter. They will find a way. I hate to say that as a lawyer. Um, it, it's, it's awful to say. You should be able to think that you're going into court and you're going to have a fair hearing and things are going to be done based on the facts and the law. I'm not comfortable. I'm not confident that that's going to happen in this particular case. However, when it gets to the Supreme Court, I think it's a, I won't say nothing's a slam dunk in the law, but I think it's a win. I think it's a clear-cut win for a couple of reasons. The principal reason is a case called Youngstown Sheeton Tube versus Sawyer. For all the lawyers who are in the audience, they know it immediately because you study it in, in con law. Uh, I happen to, to deal with this stuff on a regular basis when it comes to regulations that are issued and the enforcement of the regulations and, and presidential um, 
executive orders dealing with these kinds of things. And basically what Youngstown Sheet and Tube says is if the, and I'm, I'm kind of uh, just kind of summarizing this, I'm not giving you a legal analysis, but in essence, where Congress has acted on a matter and set forth fairly definitive guidelines, the president's authority under Article 2 as the executive, the person to execute that legislation, is extraordinarily broad. I mean, he's got to stay within the confines. But in this particular case, Congress did a couple of things. The first thing they did was pass the National Emergencies Act back in 1976, which gave him sweeping authority to declare emergencies. And by the way, there are other acts that provide the declaration of emergencies, but this is the one under which he's proceeding, and it gives him sweeping authority. And in fact, there are about two dozen, more than two dozen pending national emergencies out there. Trump has already himself issued three national emergencies. This is something that is relatively uncontroversial. But in addition to that, Congress has acted with respect to fencing specifically or border walls specifically, both in this current bill, but in the 2007 Secure Fence Act, which gives guidance, which says that the Congress has approved the production and um, or the the, uh, protection of the border and the building of barriers to do so. So the president is completely within his authority to issue a declaration, emergency declaration. Now, a number of people will say, well, he said some things that would indicate it's not an emergency. Um, Yeah, I will tell you that the Ninth Circuit is going to seize upon that immediately. They're going to make with it as much as they can. But in the last analysis, the facts overcome any statement that the president makes, with almost any statement that the president makes along these lines, because the facts indicate that we have, he's, he's going to be able to say that Congress acted on this thing, and in addition to that, we've got tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. These are facts. They're verified. ICE is going to be able to talk about it. The Border Patrol is going to be able to talk about it. DHS in general will be able to talk about it. All of the drugs coming across the border, all the criminals coming across the border, the wholesale invasion by caravans coming across the border, the fact that we have anywhere from 11 to 22 million illegal aliens in this country, we don't even know how many we have. That's how much of an emergency this is. We have a completely unsecured border. Terrorists can come across. And so I think that with I'm not going to say without question. I've been practicing too long to say that anything is um, is a certainty. But I would say that if you were to ask me what are the probabilities prevails at the end of the day, I'd say they're at least at 80 percent and probably more. And I know that constitutional scholars much bigger and better than me put the number even higher than that. Pete, last thing before you jet, and we're already late, but just real quick, going back to the bill part of this. First of all, outstanding analysis, by the way, of the uh, emergency and its likelihood to, to stand up in court. But back to the bill. Is the bill, because it's only a funding bill through September, the end of the fiscal year, are, are all component of it, uh, components of it wiped out at that time? In other words, the part that allows, or that limits, I should say, the number of uh, people that can be detained, whether they be illegal aliens or asylum seekers, by ICE or Customs and Border Patrol or, or enforcement, uh, um, are, is that does that go away then? In other words, are we only going to be yeah, catch and release until sure. September, sure. or is catch and re- release now part of the law? I haven't, I haven't looked at the specific provisions, all the specific provisions, but I can tell you this. What will run out is the funding, but I doubt seriously that the substantive provisions of the bill will expire at that time. I think they will still be there, and what Congress needs to do Ugh. in September to get rid of that is pass something that completely excises that stuff from the... And by the way, 
we need to get our hands around the budget process finally. This is not how this is supposed to work. And that's why we have these crises all the time with these continuing resolutions, because Congress is not doing its constitutional function to pass a budget. We shouldn't be visiting this all the time. But to answer your question, without looking at the specific provisions, I doubt seriously that the substantive provisions are going to expire at that time. Congress is going to have to act. The only thing that expires is the funding. Well, that's what makes the bill even that much worse and why I was so frustrated with the whole thing to begin with. But, Pete, great analysis all the way around. Thank you, my friend. We'll catch up again very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Pete. Peter Kirsten now joining us, 1032 News Time, now on AM 1420. Uh. 1039, now the Bob France Authority continues on AM 1420. The answer got you until 11 o'clock. 21 minutes of outstanding awesome left for you. Then Mike Gallagher, then Dennis Prager, then... The Doctor, Dr. G, then uh, Seculo and Elder, right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks again to Peter Kirstenau. Yeah, I, um, the bill that Pete and I were discussing, and Pete did such a great job of trying to jam so much information into about four minutes there before his last, uh, for his last segment, on the uh, bill that uh, the Congress passed and the, the President should have vetoed and instead signed, uh, in addition, then to the national emergency, the, see, here's the thing, and I and I got to get this out because I I was having some conversation with people online about this on Friday, as I was disgusted by the fact that the president announced he was going to sign and then did sign that disastrous bill. People say, yeah, but Bob, it's okay because he also declared the national emergency. And I need to inform you that one does not repair the other. Declaring the national emergency may, and I emphasize the word may, free up some funds for the president to build more of the wall, or the fence, or the slats, or the barrier, or whatever we're calling it these days. It may free up some funds if it survives the court challenge. And Peter laid out a lot of the reasons why it should. Although, you know that is good, they're going to make a lot of hay, the, those who are suing the president, to stop the national emergency declaration and thus the funding of the wall. They're going to make the hay out of his foot-in-mouth statement in which he said, I don't have to do this now, I just want this to be done faster. When you declare publicly that I don't have to do this now, you are saying it's not really an emergency. I can take my time in, in working through this. But by declaring it to be an emergency, that means you have to do this now for the sake of the country. So he completely shot himself in the foot and then jammed his foot in his mouth. That's a problem. But even if he does get the funding for the building of the, the or the construction of more of the, the barriers um, and he wins in court, it doesn't undo the damage done by the bill. This was my point over the weekend on anybody that uh, you 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 know who saw me and and participated in the discussion or the arguing about this bill. This is the point that national emergency doesn't undo the damage done by the bill, and the damage done by the bill is substantial. It brings catch and release back into the law in the United States because it caps the number of illegal aliens that can be detained at any one time, or asylum seekers that can be detained. So if we reach that number, everybody else that is caught then gets the, hey, don't forget to come back in a couple of years for your deportation hearing. 
<laughs> and released into the United States population, which, of course, they don't do. They don't come back. That is an enormous part of the problem here, as well as H-2B visas. The president's, here's, here's a little bit more of what you need to know, and then I'll go to your phone calls. If you're on hold, stay there. I'm coming right to you, I promise. But I just want to share a little bit about what was in this bill that the president signed that avoided the federal uh, uh, shutdown of the federal government, which the, that, that in and of itself is good news, but it is bad news as it pertains to passing this bill. The bill contains numerous provisions which encourage illegal immigration and prevents the country from having sound border security. Limitations on ICE enforcement in Section 224, this is a poison pill, prohibits Health and Human Services from sharing the immigration status of unaccompanied minors and sponsors with the Department of Homeland Security and ICE. In other words, it provides them cover. It prohibits ICE from arresting and deporting traffickers, criminals, and gang members who ICE did not previously know about if those aliens reside in a household where, you, where an unaccompanied, uh, an unaccompanied uh, minor uh, will reside. Essentially, it creates a sanctuary stash house. As long as the child is registered at that house, every adult illegal alien in that home is off limits. 80%, by the way, of unaccompanied uh, uh, children... 80% of unaccompanied children sponsors are in the country illegally, and ICE has estimated that 30 to 40% of the MS ga- MS-13 gang members they have arrested arrived here as unaccompanied um, children. Then there's the limitations of the wall, as we talked about. Prohibits the construction of the, uh, pre- prohibits const- construction of the wall on four parcels of federal land and a state park. It gives veto power to four liberal mayors in border towns that uh, to prevent building the wall if they want, or delay building the wall until September 2019, pushing back construction of the next uh, 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 to the next fiscal year at the very earliest. It allows the DHS secretary to more than double the number of H-2B visas with no integrity reform measures and no E-Verify. Potential for up to 200,000 H-2B visas issued per year. It also contains an extension of the fraud-ridden EB-5 visa program and no, with no integrity, integrity reforms whatsoever there. So th- there is a massive amount of problems with what the president signed. I blame the Congress for negotiating it. I blame the Republicans in Congress for allowing the Democrats to rule the day. I blame the Democrats, or excuse me, the uh, uh, leadership in the Republican-controlled how, or, uh, Senate for going along with this as well. And yes, I blame the president for signing it. He should have put a big veto stamp on it, sent it back and said, get me a two-week CR that I can sign so we can continue to work because this isn't going to fly. All right, you want to be a part of that, or if you want to talk uh, going back to the racial division and the Jesse Smollett hoax case, uh, whatever you want to do for the last uh, segment, it's yours. 216-901-0945. Marty has been very patient in Cleveland. You're on the air now, Marty. Thank you, sir. Go ahead. Well, hello, Father of Eloquence. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Good, good, good. Hey, I want to comment about Jesse Smollett. Okay. Uh, if you recall back, this is well before Trump. There was a girl named Tawana Brawley who said <laughs> yeah. she was attacked. And who was her big cheerleader? Al Sharpton. Indeed. And that's many years ago. And that's not being brought up. So this fake crimes has been going on for some time now. 
Well, it, you're right. Hoax crimes have been going on. Hoax hate crimes have been going on for a long time. You're right. Um, although I would say this, Sharpton has been brought up, depending on where you watch and where you listen, because he was among the loudest Democrat liberal voices to condemn the uh, uh, the alleged perpetrators of the crime against Smollett. And people said, uh, and excuse me, and then when it was, you know, now that it's being revealed to have been a hoax, people are bringing up, okay, Sharpton, are you going to condemn this hoax hate crime? Because he never, and this is the part that nobody talks about, Marty, even after all of these years, and I believe it was the late 80s that the Tawana Brawley uh, hoax was perpetrated, that Al Sharpton helped engineer and was the public spokesman and face of, he still, to this day, has never apologized. He has never paid the money that he owes in a defamation suit by the individuals who were accused of doing those terrible things to Tawana Brawley. So here he is uh, in the middle of another one of these hoax situations, and he did say yesterday, very or no, I'm sorry, Sunday, very ironically, he did say that if Jussie Smollett is found to have perpetrated a hoax here, he should be held accountable. But he never, ever did uh, hold himself accountable for doing the same exact thing in the Tawana Brawley case. You still okay. there, Marty? I'm here. Any other I'm thoughts, here. my man? No, that's it. That's That's excellent. I'm glad you brought it up because that's a big part of the conversation. It really, really is. Um, Why do people continue to try and sell and perpetrate these hoaxes? The answer is no one is ever held accountable. Do you remember the Tawana Brawley case? I'm trying to remember the year. It was late 1980s, I believe. might have been early 90s, but I think late 1980s. And... Tawana Brawley was, I want to say, a 13-year-old black girl uh, living in New York who um, the news story said was attacked and held for four days against her will by a group of white guys who raped her for four days, did all kinds of unspeakable things to her, and then left her in a trash bag in a dumpster smeared with feces, having written horrible things all over her body with markers, having urinated upon her, and and like I said, I mean, just all kinds of horrific things, right? That's how she was found. And all of New York was beside itself with rage over this horrific attack, this racist attack on on a defenseless young girl. And the individuals who were accused, their lives ruined, destroyed. And the lead, the ringleader in all of it, was Al Sharpton, who began his career of fleecing people at that very moment. He was the civil rights icon defending this young, innocent girl from this horrific attack, demanding justice, no justice, no peace, etc., etc., etc. Except upon countless hours and days and weeks of investigations and testimony and, and, and evidence and more, come to find out, Every single bit of it was staged, not real, didn't happen. Al Sharpton sued for defamation of character and slander 
Al Sharpton owes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Al Sharpton hasn't paid dollar one in these 30-plus years. Al Sharpton has not yet so much as apologized, apologized even, to the victims of the hoax, those who were accused of being the, the perpetrators of the crime. And now Al Sharpton has spent the last 30 years as a celebrate. He ran for president and a celebrated civil rights leader and given his own TV show on MSNBC. Of course there are going to be more hoaxes. Of course there are going to be more stunts, fake crimes, in order to try to advance careers or destroy political movements, like conservative political movements. Of course there are going to be. Why? Because no one has fear of repercussions. Al Sharpton got off scot-free, and mark my words, Jussie Smollett will get off scot-free. Oh, they may indict him. The grand jury probably has no choice. They better indict him. And they may strike a deal with him, and he'll get a guilty plea out of him, or a no-contest plea, and he'll get probation. If that, he's not going to prison, he's not going to be fined, he's not going to be held to account uh, for this any more than uh, Al Sharpton was. And that's what's going to lead to the next one. And the next one, and the next hoax after that. All right, ten fifty one. Time out. We'll get a couple of more phone calls in before the top of the hour on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. The last caller had me wondering, so I just did a little check. Uh, the Tawana Brawley case, looking for an update on it. Um, as of 2013, six years ago, Tawana Brawley finally began paying damages to, to uh, Steve Pagones, one of the men that she... Because the people that she accused, by the way, those four white men she accused of doing these terrible things, um, uh, some of them were police officers. One of them was a prosecuting attorney. Steve Pagones was one of those. Brawley's payment came in the form of nearly $3,800 in wage garnishment. So she didn't voluntarily pay. They garnished $3,800 in in wages from her back in 2013. She still owes more than $400,000 in defamation damages. Al Sharpton owes, I don't know the exact amount, but I want to say a similar amount of money there as well. And he has not paid a nickel of it and has never been held accountable. And, in fact, has been celebrated, again, as a civil rights leader. Don in uh, Cuyahoga Falls. Hey, Don, you're on the air. Go ahead. Okay, Bob, I'll make it quick because I know we're sure. getting to the end. But I, I agree with you that I wish Donald Trump had not signed the bill, too. Yeah. But I don't really think he had a choice. I think he was in a losing situation there, a lose-lose situation. Uh, but I do want to point out, you know, somebody else has said that the, this was not just the Democrats, but it's the Republicans who stuck it to him here. They they knew what they were doing, and this was just a, an outright uh, thumbing of their nose to Donald Trump. Uh, it was Republicans that negotiated a lot of those uh, the uh, the bad things in the bill that you were pointing out, and they know what they were doing. And what kind of frosts me here, and is that uh, you had on Bob Frost last week from the Republican Party. Yes. And I know you're going to that dinner, the Lincoln dinner. Yes. And uh, I, I hope you can express to them how much people out here like me despise them 
for what they've done to the Republican Party. I have to hold my nose and vote when I vote. But uh, this this is them, and when they're thumbing their nose at Donald Trump, it's also at us. And there is Bob Frost on your radio show raising money, uh, you know, asking for a handout again. Elect us. We'll take care of you. And it uh, just really burns my bacon. And that's pretty much what I wanted to say. Well, Don, uh, I appreciate your opinion. I really do. Thanks very much. I would say this, though. One thing that Rob Frost and the Cuyahoga County Republican Party, they are doing <clears throat> that is fair, to be fair, is they are uh, raising money to also launch the Trump re-election bid in the state of Ohio. As we all know, and I don't want to get into the whole Democrat or the whole uh, presidential cycle, election cycle again, but we all know the story about Republican presidents never winning unless they win the state of Ohio. So clearly, Cuyahoga County is a big, big part of that. We need to limit the number of, and we, you know, we never win. Republicans, conservatives never win Cuyahoga County because it's because it's because of its overwhelming uh, Democratic demographics. How about that? Say that five times fast. Um, but obviously, it's an, it's important to win as many uh, votes as we can in the uh, in Cuyahoga County because of the uh, the statewide vote. We absolutely must win uh, in the state of Ohio. So, to me, uh, look, I'm not always thrilled with everything the Republican Party does. I'm not always thrilled with everything my president does. I'm not always thrilled with everything Rob Frost or the Cuyahoga County Republicans do, or, or Mayor John, or I mean uh, Governor John Kasich did, or Governor Mike DeWine will do. There's going to be problems. There's going to be disagreements among conservatives and Republicans, but that's okay, as long as we are united in our effort to stop the Democrats and to stop, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a Bernie Sanders who just declared today, or a Kamala Harris, or a Cory Booker, or anybody else from taking this country down a road that it has never been before down a socialist road, we absolutely must stop. And that means uh, getting out there and supporting, yes, our local uh, Republican parties for the, you know, and, and the funds that they are trying to raise to help President Trump. All of that is, is, is very important. But I do understand your opinion, and I appreciate it. All right, that's it. That's all the time that we've got. Good conversations today. We're back tomorrow. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher's next. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.